Well, hey, it's great to see all of you. Hope you had an awesome, awesome Thanksgiving and some great time off of school. And uh, thanks for being back here tonight. So, uh, yeah, we're starting this new series. We've got three weeks tonight and two more weeks before a little Christmas break. And uh, isn't this, I just feel like life's pretty chaotic. Like life is pretty crazy. And so I think this is something we can all relate to. And I'm going to get pretty quickly to um, what the Bible says on this. It's sort of a different topic. But man, for you students in high school, like I feel like my life is crazy. And kids and that adds to that. But there's a, there's a certain part of me that goes, I would never, I don't care how crazy life is now, I would never go back to high school. Um, the amount of homework, the amount of things that you juggle as a high school student um, just seems daunting. Like, it seems completely overwhelming. Some of you are just exhausted. Um, seniors, right now, you are trying to figure out where am I going to college next year? Maybe you juniors are already stressing about this. Um, where am I going to go to college next year? And you, maybe you've boiled it down to two schools, or you were, you were like 100% sure you're going to this school, and then you went and visited it, or then you got a scholarship to this other school, and so now you have this decision to make, or you want to go one place, but the money came for the other school. Um, and then what are you going to do for the rest of your entire life? So it's not just college. You just feel this weight of like, I have to make a decision about how I'm going to spend my life. For the rest of you, uh, sports and papers to write and projects to finish and band and dance and work because you have a job and youth group on Wednesday nights, which like, thank you for being here and Carrie to come on Wednesday nights. But um, you babysit or you have siblings that you have to babysit. Um, you juggle so much stuff, and the expectations from your parents um, or from friends or whoever, and, um, it's just crazy. And then, I was at lunch, at home for lunch today, um, another, like, you go worldwide or America-wide. There's another shooting in San Bernardino. Um, I didn't get any of the facts. I don't know what the place was, but there was still a shooter, I, th- I mean, I'd maybe been captured I think they didn't give me much details and I came back here to church but like 20 people or so at least injured another shooting like this seems like you almost go oh it's not even a huge deal anymore but it's a huge deal um isn't life just crazy isn't life just sort of full of chaos and then of course um it's Christmas season now right as we sort of alluded to at this last Black Friday uh Christmas season and so that adds to just uh more stuff, Christmas parties, presents to buy, more stuff to do. So yesterday, I sent an email to Sydney Chase. I don't know where she is. And um, I was asking Sydney about um, our, coll- our schedule for college ministry. And I want to go every once in a while. And I was like, when are you meeting? I know you're meeting tonight, but are you meeting next week? And are you meeting on the 15th? And I just said, I said, oh, I feel so busy. Other than Monday night, and I'm gone last night, and Oasis every Wednesday. And I go, I just feel so busy. And her email back right away was like, we're with you. I mean, sort of like her and Eli, like, yeah. And then she said this. She said, tis the season, right? Because tis, se- tis the season for craziness. And that's what, and Christmas is wonderful, and the holiday season is warm and cuddly and nice, and we love it, but um, it adds to a very chaotic season. But so, um, sort of turning a corner, in the past few weeks, I was thinking about just the chaos of life and what many of you, what I sense, at least, from you um, Life's just very, very busy. I mean, if I went around to each of you and just said, tell me about your life, I would guess that 50% of you would say, in one word, you'd say busy. I'm just busy. Life is good. It's fine, but I'm busy. And so the chaos of life, and maybe especially the Christmas season, um, it just made me think about where does the Bible say this chaos comes from? 
What makes life so chaotic? And you probably know the answer to that. But so for tonight and for the next two weeks, we're going to be in the New Testament book of Romans, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Rome. And I want us to see the story of redemption that the Bible presents. What the, what's, what's the bad news? And then how does that lead to very, very good news through salvation? What is the story of redemption through Jesus? Now, to start with, let me remind you of something that we talked way, way back at the very beginning of this school year. Um, our very first series, we did a series called Out of Focus. Do you remember this? It was about the Bible and how, how to understand the Bible and the overall story of the Bible and how to read the Bible. Um, the, let me remind you of just what I said back then. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral. Like, here's just another, here's the moral of the story, here's a lesson from it, and so this is what you learn from Daniel and the lion's den, and this is what you learn from David and Goliath, this is what you learn from Jonah. The Bible is actually a single story about what's wrong with the world and the human race, and about what God has done to put it right in Jesus. And then finally, it's about how, the, how history ultimately turn out in the end. So yes, there are a lot of individual stories that make up the big story, but every story is pointing to this this grand story, this overarching theme of redemption throughout the whole Bible, and that's very, very important to remember. And so um, where we're starting in this series is this. This is basically the Apostle Paul's version of this story simply in this letter that he wrote to the Romans. And so we're mainly just looking at three chapters in this series. We're going to look at chapter three tonight, or at least uh, part, and then next week chapter six, Romans six, and then Romans seven, three of my um, just most favorite chapters in the book of Romans, and I love the whole book. But this is sort of what, basically what Paul calls the gospel. So grab your Bibles, grab your maps, whatever you have, and I want you to follow along with me. Um, turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. I'm reading out of the NIV translation. If you use one of our Bibles from the Bible cards, those are a little older, and there's a little, they'll differ just slightly. Or follow along on the screens. But the Apostle Paul writes this, chapter 3, Verse 9. So he says, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? He's writing to Jews. Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin, as it is written. So he quotes here, this is all Old Testament uh, scripture. No one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. Not that I should add to scripture here, but you may say the way of chaos is what they do know. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul writes, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So here in Romans chapter 3, Paul is coming to the end of his writings on what's the problem in the world, what's causing all of this chaos and strife and fighting. It's virtually the first three chapters of this letter to the Romans, certainly chapter one. Chapter two, he begins to address the Jews specifically a little bit more, 
bring out their own self-righteousness. But in chapter 3, he's really wrapping it up here at verse 20. And so even by verse 21, we start to see the resolution. But he's writing about what is wrong with the human race. And so, of course, in a single word, problem, sin. You know what's ironic to me as I looked at this and looked at this passage? That the word sin is actually only mentioned twice here in all of this. In all the, the verses that Paul quotes right here in the center, mostly Psalms, all these passages from the Old Testament, the word sin is not in there at all. He says in verse 9, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And he uses it one more time in verse 20. But it's sin. The problem is sin. And so Paul here is sort of giving us a summary statement on what you might call the, a doctrine or a theology of sin. In fact, if somebody, uh, you know, seasoned Christian, if you said where in the Bible does it talk about sin, they might go Romans 3, like most of all. But before I go on, I do want to mention, um, this is a really difficult passage. And I want to say, I specifically remember, I, um, I grew up going to church but did not walk with Jesus. Through middle school, into high school, semi-rebellious, didn't want to be the church kid, didn't want to be the pastor's son. Um, in my junior year of high school, I started to get serious. Started reading the Bible on my own. Started to really love Jesus. Started to really love the gospel. And started to study the Bible on my own. And so every night, I'd be down in my basement before bed, and I'd be sort of just doing a devotion thing and reading scripture. And I've got to say, I, I, I mean, I love the book of Romans. This is a really hard passage. For some of you in here, that maybe are newer Christians, um, you read some of that or you hear what I read and you go, really? Like, no one that seems a little over the top, Paul, that seems a little harsh. And uh, so it, I mean, it did seem like Paul was a little harsh. And uh, so this passage troubled me a lot. And as I got into college, I came to Omaha, went to Bible college, and as I began to understand it more, um, eventually this exact passage began to revolutionize how I viewed myself, how I viewed other people in the world. And it really began, I mean, it just sort of clicked for me, and it really made sense how true this is. And so I hope to unpack some of that here tonight. don't have a lot of time, but this passage is perhaps the place in the Bible that makes most, the strongest statement about the human heart. And so I want you to write down, I sort of have three headings, and I'm going to go through them one at a time. And then for each heading, I have a statement, sort of a summary statement at the end. I would love for you to write it down. If you don't have a taking card... If you have a smartphone, write it on your app, on your notes app or something on your phone. But number one, I want you to see this. It's the totality of sin. The totality of sin. That's not a great word. The all-inclusiveness of sin might work. But basically, I'll sort of walk through this a little. This is mostly verses 9 through 12, the first part. Paul begins by saying over and over again, no one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one does good. All of this all-inclusive language. But the most radical statement Paul says is in verse 9, where he says, he says, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Um, now, Paul was a Jew. In fact, Paul was a Pharisee. And so he says he's writing, he's writing to the Christians in Rome, many of whom were Jewish. But what do we conclude then? He sort of is coming off this, um, all of chapter 2, sort of confronting the Jews on their own self-righteousness and then talking about how God is faithful. But he says, do we what do we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? No. Are we any better than these Gentiles? Let me remind you, Paul, in chapter 1, if, I don't know if you remember this at the fall retreat, I think Friday night, if you were at the fall retreat, James talked about Romans chapter 1 and sort of how the wrath of God 
is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness, or godlessness, on and on and on. Paul's coming off of confronting sort of the wicked violence, um, all this wickedness of the Gentiles, and yet he comes to the, to the Jews who are reading this and says, we're no better. You are no better. We are all, we're all in the same boat. So the most wicked pagan Gentile, and if you're new to the Bible or whatever, I hope you know Jew and Gentile. Gentile just means not Jewish. So anybody that was Jewish was a Gentile. We would be considered Gentiles, unless, unless you're Jewish. But that's sort of all included, right? It's everybody. So when Paul says Jew and Gentile alike, that means everybody. Um, same thing, this wicked, you know, pagan Gentile or this self-righteous Pharisee who thinks they're awesome, thinks God owes them blessing. Paul says, we're all the same. You're no better. Now, what is sin? Is that question? It's really hard to define that, right? What is sin? How do we define sin? Most of us don't really like the word. We don't like to talk about it. Non-Christians certainly don't like to talk about it. It's, it's very much sort of this churchy religion. And to many people, they don't even, I don't know. They don't know if they would say, I'm, I don't sin. But they just don't like to talk about it, right? Um, the word itself, which I don't think is great, but you've heard this before, many of you, if you've grown up in church, the word sin just means the mark or to fall short. You're, you know, the classic example, you're like an archer and you're aiming for the, the target and you just, you fall short. You miss the mark. Now, I looked this up in the concordance today, the word sin in this passage, and the third, the, like the third definition was to err, um, to be mistaken. And so some people would prefer to just say, I make mistakes, and everybody makes mistakes, and it's not that big a deal. And um, you're right, everybody makes mistakes. Well, that's actually in, that's a definition. You could say that's fine. But that's just what the word sin means. It's like um, throughout the Bible, it's like this word that it means something way deeper than that, and I'll get there in a second. But there's relational stuff going on here. It's not just falling short. There's more to it than that when it comes to sinning against God. Why does this matter? We know this. God is holy, righteous, spotless, pure, blameless. He is glorious, and, um, and he hits the mark, and we fall short of it. And so to be in the presence of God, we're sinful. And so um, you say, what about the person who just says to me, Brad, like my friend at school, well, I just don't believe in sin. I don't God, and I don't like sin that just sounds dirty and gross and churchy, and I don't like the word, and so I just don't believe in it. And I don't believe in God, and so it doesn't apply to me. Like, I'm out. I'm out. Um, okay, like, maybe plenty of people say that. Um, now, I, I would say it's not, it's not exactly that easy. Look, look at the end of verse 19, where it says the whole world, essentially the whole world is or will be held accountable to God. The whole world will be held accountable to God. Because God knows you, God forms you, even the non-Christians. Um, you might say, too, like, well, just because you don't believe it doesn't mean that that's not true. And I might not want to believe in gravity, but if I step off a 10-foot building, um, it's going to hurt because gravity is true whether you believe it or not. And you don't need to get in an argument, but I'm sure plenty of people just say, well, I don't believe in sin. Now, again, I'm going to get there. It's way deeper than just, um, I know I shouldn't, and my told me not to, and you got to follow the rules. We'll get into that. But here's what Paul is saying, no matter what your record is. No matter how good or how bad you've been, we are all sinful. It's the totality of sin. It doesn't matter how many hours of service you've done or what your church attendance is like or how often you read the Bible and pray. On the flip side, it does not matter 
how bad you've been, the crimes you've committed, the things that you've done with that other person that just racked guilt and shame, we're all alike. You know, like, this is strong language, you guys. This should be sobering language that before God, we're all condemned. Like, that's the baseline. You're born sinful. The theological term is called total depravity, which does not mean that we're as bad as we could be, but it means we're all in the same boat. Sin is all-inclusive. It is the totality of sin, and we're condemned by God because we've all gone against God. Well, how could that be, Brad? How could that be? We'll get to that in the second point. But first, again, don't miss this. Paul is saying that both the violent criminal, the guy who's robbing and raping and killing people, and a Pharisee that feels like he has done a lot of good and has earned blessing from God and has earned respect from other people, He's saying that as different as both of these people look on the outside, on the surface, that underneath these are expressions of radical self-centeredness. That the self-righteous Pharisee, the Christian, maybe us, that just thinks we're better than everyone, that thinks we're superior, that thinks we're holier than now, there's radical self-absorption within it. Being good does not save you. And we know that, but we keep living as if it does. This is the totality of of sin. Sin is not just something you do, it's who you are. It's within you, and it's within me, and it's very, very serious. Now, there's a couple implications of this, and I don't have time to go into them. Maybe I will. We all come, like, sort of not a Christian yet, or you have friends that are, we all come into Christianity with a grid or a worldview, and we enter thinking, if I do this thing, this Christianity thing, or maybe any of your other friends who believe other um, religious sort of things. We think, if I do this and that, God, then he will bless me and do this or that for me. And the big question is, what is that this and that sort of, like, what are those things that I need to, you just have to see, we all enter Christianity primarily with this moralistic world that says good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And that is absolutely not true. Because you can be, you, I mean, Again, goodness is good, and don't hear me saying you could go out and sin all you want, but when you become good, you can be proud, you can become arrogant, you can become self-righteous, that are just as serious. And I'm not trying to belittle sin, I'm saying the Pharisees were just as sinful as, um, as the tax collectors and the sinners in the Bible. So we always, worldview, both good and bad alike are condemned. The other thing I want to just quickly mention is um, when we are Christians, we... We just can't, we can have no superiority over anybody else. That the moment you go, I'm just better than that, uh, that guy, that race, that class of people, automatically, whether, like, wherever you are socially, wherever you live socially, makes us prone to look down on other races or other classes, like social classes. And for the Christian, it just cannot be. Uh, even just strictly liberal conservative. If you're, a, if you're a Republican in here, you, you, you do not look at Democrats and say, I'm no better than you. At least, or maybe your parents, maybe you don't care about politics, but your parents are probably, they would never say that, right? They'd go, no, I, I am better than you because you're wrong. And politics are serious. If any of our parents take politics, and ver- politics is, I mean, we should take that very seriously. There should be none of that. For the Christian, the gospel liberates us from all kinds of looking down at other races or other classes or people that are whatever labeled subculture, the druggies, the hip, whatever it is. There's none of that for the Christian. So for point one, here's my summary main point. Sin affects virtually 
everyone. We are all alike. So if you haven't written anything down, write that down. Sin affects virtually everyone. We are all alike. I don't know. That's not even great. That doesn't affect virtually everyone. It affects everyone. Point two is this, the trajectory of sin. The trajectory of sin, another difficult T word. See, so now what I want to, we have to deal with the fact that Paul does seem to go a little too far here, doesn't he? I mean, it seems to be over the top. Um, so in verse 11, I'm going to point out some of these things. Again, this is where we just go, really? So verse 11, there is no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. Um, I remember high school, junior class, Brad, I go, really? Like, I know some people who really are seeking spiritually. Like, like they're genuinely seeking God. That, I mean, that's just, that's just not true. There's no one who does good. Whoa, 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 Paul. Like, there's plenty of people who really, like, a lot of good. Mark Zuckerberg, right? Just had a kid, but is, like, giving away 99% of his, which is just a mass fortune. Or at least that's, I saw some stat this morning on the Today Show. People who do good that really bless a lot of people, right? So, no, that's not true. Um, but if you look more carefully here, you see that Paul is giving us a definition of sin that goes way deeper. I already alluded to this. Paul is showing us, and maybe right, Paul is showing us that sin is relational before it ever becomes, or if it ever becomes, simply behavioral, if that makes sense, like breaking the law. I'm going to say that again. Paul is showing us that sin is relational before it ever comes behavioral, if it does, something like breaking the law. So look, look with me at verse 12. You say, what are you talking about relational? All have turned away. Uh, where's the second one? No one seeks, no one seeks God. They have turned away. Um, Paul starts to use directional terms. Like sin has a trajectory. These are, these are directional words. Sin will take you in a direction. What are you aiming at? What path are you on? Um, let me put it like this. Sin is not so much about doing good things or bad things. Sin mostly comes down to what is your motive. What, what I'm trying to get at is, um, yes, you shouldn't sin or you shouldn't, you shouldn't lie. Lying is bad. You know that. But why do you lie in any situation? There are reasons underneath your sin. There's always the sin beneath the sin. What are you doing your doing for? What are you doing your good deeds for? Why are you doing them? To put God in your debt? To somehow, I mean, we just by default truly believe that if we go to church enough, God will owe us a pretty good life. But you look at Job, and Job totally screws that up. You start getting too into Joel Osteen, if you know who Joel, Joel Osteen is, and this like God wants to bless you. God cares deeply, but life is sinful and hard, and your life may not be blessed. Again, look at Job. James brought this out big time at the fall retreat this year. What are your idols? What is the sin beneath the sin? So I just don't lie, but why do you lie in any situation, okay? You don't want to get in trouble? There's a lot of reasons, right? Primarily, why do you lie to your parents? You don't want to get in trouble. Um, you want your parents' approval. You don't want to mess with the consequences. Like, you know if you're honest about what you did last night or when you got home, there'll be consequences. That sort of goes with the first one. But what are these things? Those are relational consequences. Sin is always relational. It's not necessarily, I mean, it is, I, again, I don't want you to think like, oh, you know, don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying like, 
It doesn't matter what you do or your behavior, but it's not typically about the behavior. The behaviors are just covering up your motives. When you want to go like look at stuff online or do other things, um, our, our, like, our hungers are disordered. Our thirsts are disordered. We want the wrong stuff. We're worshiping the wrong stuff. And so behind every sin is some sort of idol for the most part. If I'm perfectly honest with my parents, my wife, my friends, um, maybe I'd go, I'm going to hurt them if I'm just totally honest with them. So I try to save face. But again, why? We're inherently selfish. What I want you to see is how many of your deeds are really just you being selfish. It's really, it's a, you don't care at all about others. You don't care about God. You're not doing it for others' sake. You're not, you're not obeying for God's sake. We're obeying for our own sake. To look good in front of others, to feel good about ourselves. Again, this gets very deep, right? For some of you, your heads are spinning, and you're like, I don't even know where to go with this. It would be much, much easier, wouldn't it, for me to just give you the list of sins? And you go, that's very simple. I'm not doing great with those either. No one seeks God. Yes, that's true. You know what wouldn't be true? You know what Paul couldn't have wrote here? He couldn't have wrote, no one seeks blessing from God. Because that isn't true. But when he writes, no one seeks God, that's actually true. No one understands. There's no one who does good. What Paul is trying to say is no one's doing good for God's sake, for the glory of God. Why does Mark Zuckerberg give away a lot of his money? For himself, I guess. Now, for the Christian, eventually, you can, how do I put this? Maybe, until you realize that your good deeds are sort of worthless, you cannot do a good deed. And once you start to see that deeds will actually do nothing for you, you can actually begin to do a good deed. You can actually begin to, and again, maybe you go, Brad, why is it so wrong for me to get something out of it? Well, in a sense, it's not. I mean, that's fine for you to get something out of it, but that can't be your main thing or your last thing. For the Christian, again, you're, you're just worshiping yourself. You remember a couple weeks ago, I put the word justification on the board, and I said, at the root of all of our problems, we're self-justifiers. Things for ourselves, we're not Jesus-justifiers. So who are you doing your good deeds for? Are you doing them for God or for you? So here's the point on this second point. Sin will take me down a path away from God. Sin will take me down a path away from God. Again, there's all kinds of things, you know, like how many times has your parents said to you, how many times have I told you not to? And you do it anyway. And so there's just disobedience. There's all kinds of things that you guys deal with with your parents. You do lie to your parents. You disobey your parents. Um, but try to think of your motives behind that. You know what you begin to find as you, maybe juniors and you found this a little easier? It's just a lot easier to just obey your parents. And you can do it quickly and you can do it without complaining. And life just goes better. And um, you don't get punished. And then there are like self-benefits. But there's also just Christian, you go... Um, dog on it, I'm just going to obey my parents because that's what a Christian should do. And because I love Jesus, and if he's really my God and he says to honor your father and mother, I need to work on that, and I just need to do it. Finally, point three, what's the cure for sin? What's the cure for the chaos? Verse 19 says this, and there's always a lot of ways we can put this, but look at verse 19. Paul writes, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. So that every mouth may be silenced. What's the cure for sin? Here's at least the way I'm putting it tonight. It's going to God in silence, in awe of his presence. 
What does it mean to go to God in silence? What does that mean? It means with no excuses and no plan B. It means to go to God and not simply say, God, I know I told you I would never do that again, and I did it, I'm sorry. And I, No, shut up. It's like God just goes, silence. So that every mouth, just, no, just come, just bring me yourself. Yeah, but God, I know, but I, I promise you this next time I do it again, I'm not going to say those things again, I'm not going to do that with her again. Just shut up. And come to God in silence, and even in fear, look at verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. But there should be this holy awe and reverence. It's not like God's scared. The fear means like, God, I'm in awe of you. God, I'm going to be accountable to you someday. God, you're beautiful. You're wonderful. You satisfy. God, I'm just going to come before you and go, God, I have nothing at all. I have no excuses and I have no plan B. And you know what? I probably will do that again, but help me not to. Here I am, God. And it's the cure for our sin, the solution, you guys. It's Psalm 46.10, and you know this verse, many of you, be still and know that I am God. So it's to simply going to God as if to say, God, here I am. It's just me, and I give myself to you, but I've got nothing. I've got nothing, but I know that that's all I need to do. I just need to bring myself to you. Because here's the deal, and maybe write this down. The only thing we can bring to God for him to use is nothing. And the problem is in our world today, nothing is the one thing that nobody has. Does that make sense? We all have something. We all try to bring something to God. We try to bring our moral record. We try to bring our church attendance. Or else for some people, we have done so much bad stuff that we just go, God could never love me. I'm just destined for hell and bring it on. Some, you know, some, some of you have friends like that. Oh, I'm just, who cares? But God still loves you. Despite of that, he paid a high price for you. Everyone is trying to bring something to God, but the only thing that we can bring to God is nothing. It's just us. So run to him tonight and be still. So again, here's the third main point summary statement. For this point, sin brings you to repent before God in silence. Sin, there's three sin statements. Sin brings you to repent before God in silence. That's the cure for the chaos. And then in the second half of the chapter, and I'm not even going to go there. Maybe you'll get there in small groups tonight. We'll get there the next two weeks. Paul turns a corner, and we find the resolution. But now, he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. All the Old Testament testifies about this. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all these. This this righteousness, that's what we need. It's given to anyone who will believe. Through faith. It's just free. It's through trust. And it's only through Jesus Christ. But man, for us, we got to get serious about our sin. We got to get to the root of our sin. We got to analyze it more. We got to go, why do I love the stuff that I love? Why do I love the stuff that I do? Let's pray. Father, God, the one thing that you want us to bring to you is nothing. And it's the one thing that most of us don't have, God. We come to you with all of our stuff. God, our life is so chaotic. And yet, God, we can't just be still. God, we do a lot of good things. And God, we, for many of us in here, we have to do all this stuff. We have to work. We have to make money somehow. And we have to get our homework done. And we have to get the projects done. 
We've chosen to do dance, and we've chosen to play sports and play volleyball. We've chosen to be in the band. And God, they're all good things. God, help us to deal with just the craziness of life. And God, for some of us, sin um, really isn't a part of that. God, we can manage all of this very, very well, but Lord, keep us from being self-justifiers. God, help us to run to you, to trust you, for you to be our, our, our one and only God, our main thing, and for us to obey you because you're good. God, so it's not I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God, but Lord, our, the, the phrase of the gospel is I am accepted by God through Jesus, for I obey. And God, how could we do any other thing? So thank you for the cross. Thank you for this. And thank you for the righteousness that you've given us freely. If we trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.